if, if I were to ask you, do I look nervous? Right? You, you might say, no, that's steady as a rock. But the problem is I hold my Bible with this hand. But I like our chances today. We're going to make it. If you have your Bible with you, would you please open to Matthew chapter 9. And if you don't have your Bible with you or your battery is low, there's a Bible in a pew rack in front of you. And you'll find our passage, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. You'll find it on page 964 in your pew Bible. While you're turning there, I want to take a moment to express my profound gratitude to several groups. Um, These past several months have been a remarkable journey for our family as it has been for your faith family. And uh, I have been so blessed and my family has been so blessed by the work of your pastor search team. They have represented you so well. They have worked with integrity and kindness and sensitivity. They have been gentle. They have been prayerful. Uh, They have been a joy to work with and to hang out with. Uh, I've enjoyed my time so much with the elders, those that I've been able to get to know up to this week and those that I've been able to know better this week. And uh, I know that they love you and their hearts beat for this church, that Christ would be glorified in it. I'm so grateful to your staff, unbelievable men and women who express their gifts from the Lord in their service to you. You are a blessed church to have the staff that you have. And uh, I want to say thank you to you, church family. Uh, This week, I've had just a great privilege to meet so many of you. Every time I've opened my mouth, someone has tried to put food in it. (laughs) I didn't object. I mean, I don't want to hurt your feelings. But I, it's not lost on me or my family, the busyness of this season and every effort you, you've made to <laughs> look at my large head on videos, to listen to sermons, to come to meetings and to do all of those things. Thank you for your commitment to this process and your love for your church and just for your incredible, overwhelming generosity. I've, I've told a few people, it's, there's this strange dichotomy for me coming from Kansas, so many nice sweet, smiling, kind people have said, New Englanders are so cold and hard. And then they give me food and coffee and hug my neck and say, have a good day. Um, But I think that's the flavor of the body of Christ in action. So um, we are a most blessed family. We have been richly blessed by you. Grateful to God that he's allowed our paths to intersect. And uh, I'm excited that we get to spend time in God's word together this morning. Uh, When I was in college, I have a friend named Rick, and Rick and I kind of look like each other, tall, redheaded. I used to have a lot more red hair, and uh, Rick was a basketball player at our little university, Uh, and he he wasn't the best basketball player, but he was a devoted basketball player, and so freshman year through the start of his senior year, he played on the JV team. And so that really, I mean, he was a practice squad player, and, and he's out there just throwing his body around, doing everything he can with these dreams of one day getting a jersey uh, for the varsity team. Well, senior year, 
pep rally before the first game of the season, and the coach is up there, and he's introducing all the players on the team, on the varsity squad, and then he said, I've got a surprise. There's this one guy who's heart and soul of this organization, he's given everything he's had for three years, and he doesn't know I'm going to do this. Rick, here's your jersey. Rick starts crying, and he walks up, and everyone's, ah, because everyone knows and loves Rick. It was a great moment. We all separate, go our own ways, and a little later that afternoon, I was sitting in the library, and this guy I didn't know walked by me, and he goes, hey, congratulations on your jersey. So I, I responded the way all of you would have responded. I said, thanks. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a good future. So apparently all redheaded pasty guys look alike. It's a little racist if you ask me, but that's apparently what that bro thought. Uh, we bore a striking resemblance uh, to one another. Uh, if our churches are going to be potent with the gospel, truly potent. And if our churches are going to be truly heart united to each other, we got to bear a resemblance to someone. And that resemblance is not to the founders of our churches who worked so hard and followed the leadership of the Holy Spirit to put a local congregation in a unique place. And that resemblance is not to the leadership in the church, though God gives us blessed and, and wonderful leaders. And that, that resemblance is not to the culture in which our church sits, Although our church is made up of people from a culture, in a culture, our resemblance has to be to Jesus Christ. And that may seem like a vague notion, but I want to show you this morning that there's nothing vague about it. There's concrete ways that you and I, as followers of Jesus and as the family of faith, together you and I can resemble Jesus Christ for the sake of the power of the gospel in the communities in which we live, in the unity of the family of Christ together. Uh, the good news is this, Jesus has always been in the business of shaping people to look like him. And in Matthew chapter 9, end of chapter 9, beginning of chapter 10, we get a great example of Jesus doing this exact same kind of work with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 9, we find Jesus early in his ministry. It's still very early. I mean, we're a bit into the gospel of Matthew, but it's still very early. And, and he's traveling around this region called Galilee. And he's doing a lot of ministry. He's preaching and he's healing and he's caring for people. Now, Galilee, the, the easiest way that, that I can think of Galilee, maybe this could be a little tool for you. Galilee is, is not a city, but think of it like a county. So he's going around this large county called Galilee. There's a big lake right in the middle of it. All these little towns, all these little villages, kind of rural, not really metropolitan. Uh, and in this region, Jesus is going from village to village doing all kinds of ministry. Now, he has in tow with him his disciples. And these guys do not come into service with Jesus with the most impressive resumes. They're not finished products. They're not powerhouses of faith. Uh, they're following a leader whom they don't truly understand at this point. But what we're going to read this morning is this incredible episode where Jesus does some intentional shaping in their lives so that these men look more like the one they're following, that they resemble the Jesus that they've committed their lives to. And here's the good news. What was true for the disciples way back in the day is true for disciples right here in this day as well. 
You and I don't come on the field ready-made followers of Jesus Christ, honed to perfection, faith without any sort of crack or doubt. You and I are a people whom God is shaping day after day. And our passage this morning shows us the kind of people God is shaping us to be. So here's my goal in preaching this passage this morning. My goal is, is simply this. It's for you to intentionally and concretely Strive to live your life in a way that resembles Jesus Christ. If we study this passage right this morning, we walk away as believers saying, these are the concrete ways I want to bring my life into alignment with Jesus. And to accomplish that purpose, what I think Matthew gives us and what I want to show you from this passage are three simple characteristics of believers who look like Jesus. Simple Shaped by the Holy Spirit, given by God, so that you and I could look like Christ in our lives and in our ministries. I want you to follow along with me as I read Matthew chapter 9. I want to start in verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. And these are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. What are the essential ways in which our lives must resemble Jesus? Let me give you three characteristics of those whose lives resemble Jesus. The first is this. I want you to write it if you're taking notes in first person. I must possess a heart like Jesus. If I'm going to resemble Jesus as a follower of his, I must possess a heart like Jesus. Our passage opens with uh, some very familiar language. If you had been reading through Matthew from start to end, you get to this part of Matthew chapter 9, and the description it gives us of Jesus is one we've already heard in the Gospel of Matthew. Back at the end of chapter 4, it says this about Jesus. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That's chapter 4. Chapter 9 Verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Now, if we were to have a Bible quiz moment, and I were to say, what happens after the end of Matthew chapter 4? When Jesus is traveling all around this region, 
healing and teaching. What happens next? Well, what happens in chapter 5 of Matthew is this large teaching section we call the Sermon on the Mount. It seems that Matthew uses this description of Jesus' ministry as a precursor to something large happening. Jesus is teaching and healing, bringing all these people in, and then he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. This is what kingdom life is like. And here in chapter 9, Jesus is traveling, preaching, healing, calling people to himself. And what's the big thing that's about to happen? He's about to shape some disciples. He's about to unleash his followers with his authority and his power. Something big is about to happen in this moment. Don't let you and I be sleepy readers of the passage, but rather to feel the power in this moment when Jesus takes men who are utterly unqualified, incapable, not prepared, and he shapes them into powerful weapons for the sake of the kingdom. Now, here's Jesus healing and preaching throughout the region of Galilee, doing all kinds of miracles, raising the dead. He's in, just in chapter 9, he's healed the two blind men. Uh, he's cured a man of leprosy. He's raised a girl from the dead. He's healed a woman who's had this issue of blood for a dozen years. Uh, chapter 9, I, I don't know how you read chapter 9 in one sitting without multiple times of just throwing the Bible down and standing up to praise God because of the power of Christ on display here. It's remarkable. And then we get to this moment where Jesus stops and Matthew gives us this intimate look into the heart of Jesus. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Everywhere Jesus went, everywhere he went, he saw hurting people. Now, they might be hurting from sickness, disease. They might be hurting from sin. They might be hurting from pride and arrogance, any number of things. There's no place, though, Jesus stepped into and he goes, these people got it down. Keep up the good work. I'll see you all later. I'm going to go to the next town. Every place he goes, he sees hurting people. Isn't it true of Jesus? He sees us for who we really are. And all of our hurts and all of our doubts and all of our fears, all the things that we want to be, the things we want to accomplish for him, he sees all of that. And when Jesus looks on the crowds, it says he looked on them with indignation. Is that what it says? No. You're supposed to say no. No, that's not what it says. It says he looked on the crowds with indifference, right? Is that, is that what it says? No. Well, you vocal New Englanders, that's great. <laughs> uh, he looked on them with compassion. He has compassion on the crowds. Yesterday, uh, we took a nice little field trip, me and my family, uh, into Boston, and we went to Quincy Market and had lunch. And uh, you want to know what I thought when I saw the crowds there? Not compassion. <laughs> uh-uh. Survival of the fittest. That's, that's what I thought. But Jesus looks on the crowds with compassion. No one else in our narrative sees the crowds the way Jesus does. Not the disciples. Now, later on, they're going to ask if they can pray down fire and brimstone on unruly villages. The Pharisees certainly don't see the crowds the way Jesus does. They've just accused Jesus of blasphemy. In chapter 9, they want nothing to do with him or his heart. 
but Jesus sees people right. What would Jesus' evaluation of, let's say, Hingham be? If he could come and look at this community, I think I know what he would say. I think he would say, this is the most beautiful Main Street in all of America. I think he would look at all the lives in this community and the communities around and he would have compassion because we are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We. He's not talking about an other. He's talking about us. Because we need Christ. You need Christ. You're a ferociously independent people. Everything you have, you have earned on your own. You have done it on your own. You pride yourself on having accomplished these things on your own. But there's one thing you cannot do, and that's rescue your own soul. You need Jesus. And you cannot forgive your own sin, and you cannot atone for your own sin, and you cannot justify your life before a holy, holy, holy God. You need Jesus. And the good news is this, when he looks at you, it's not with indignation, and it's not with indifference, and it's not with contempt, it is with compassion. He knows what you need. He knows you need him. And if you and I are going to be the kind of believers who look like our Savior, we must have compassion on the people we are around as well. We get no other alternative as followers of Jesus. We can't claim some sort of geographical exemption, but I'm from New England. Our allegiance to Him, our citizenship is in another country. We are followers of Christ, you and I. If we're going to resemble Christ, we have to be the kind of people with a heart like His, compassion for those who are lost and hurting. No one should love this community better than this church. No one. So we have to have a heart like Jesus. If we're going to look like Him, have power in our ministry, unity in our family, we have to have a heart like Jesus. Second characteristic we have to have to look like Christ, write it in first person. I must practice a strategy like Jesus. I must practice a strategy like Jesus. Now, no one stood up and ran a victory lap at the word strategy, and that's okay. But there's something really important in what Jesus does next. He looks out on the crowds with compassion. He hurts for them. That compassion doesn't just stay in the realm of sympathy. It turns into action. And what does Jesus do? Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Uh, Jesus switches metaphors quickly. We go from sheep to wheat. We've got a bunch of lost and scattered sheep. We, we need some sheep harvesters. That doesn't make sense, especially not in Kansas. But we need some sheep harvesters to go out. And to bring these people in. 
That this church is going to resemble Jesus, if we as his followers are going to resemble Jesus, that we've got to employ a strategy like Jesus, just like he does in this passage with his disciples. Uh, You see, Jesus sees what his disciples do not. His compassion helps him to see the fact that these people are broken and hurting. They need rescue. They need good news. And his compassion for them is driven by the fact that there is good news. He knows there's an alternative. There's a better way to live. There's a different way. You don't have to live lost and scattered, harassed and helpless. There's stability for people. And so Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, I want you to see what I see. Look out here. And here you're going to see these hurting people. And now here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. That's what that's the work of the church. We're going to do this. We're going to pray. And I want you to imagine this scenario with me. Let's say this church undertakes some massive effort in outreach to our communities. We're going to do whatever the job is. We, we, we just want to reach more people with the gospel. And so we have a war room set up someplace. And we've got a map of our communities up there. Here's a one-mile radius uh, around the church. And here's a three-mile. Here's a seven-mile radius. All the neighborhoods and the homes and little nooks and crannies uh, around here. Uh, and, uh, and we've got demographic studies. Uh, we know uh, population numbers. We know the centers. We've done traffic studies, all of these things. This many cars drive past our church at this time, at this point in the day. And we invite Jesus to the meeting as well. And he comes in. And we say, Jesus... Look at, look at all this that we've done. We're ready. We're ready to reach our people with the gospel. Jesus, look at our maps and our studies and our numbers. Jesus, now we need you to tell us, what do we do? And Jesus says, pray. Oh, we did that. We never start a meeting without praying. That's in the Bible somewhere. And so we prayed. We have prayed. So you're right. We we have prayed, and I'm glad we're on the same page now. Now tell us, Jesus, what do we do? Well, I, I still think you ought to pray. Oh, I mean, I mean, you're Jesus. You're going to say that, of course. Yeah, <laughs> pray. But, but Jesus, don't you see the maps and the numbers, traffic flow, all these things, needs in our communities. So we've got the prayer. Jesus, now tell us what to do. And and Jesus says still, let's pray. Prayer is not second-rate ministry. It's not what you do when you've done everything else. It is the work that moves heaven's resources to where we are. No one in Scripture treats treats prayer like it's, it's some lesser ministry. Or just something to check off of a list inside of a meeting. It is life-giving. It is soul-lifting work. It is that work that enters into the darkness of sin and the domain of the enemy to bring to where we are the power of God and the light of the gospel to rescue souls. We have a friend named Courtney, her husband Josh, and they got a couple of kids, a little girl named Grace. And uh, Grace, when she was five years old, she was a convictional vegetarian. Now, she came from a family of omnivores. And uh, omnivore is my love language, by the way. <laughs> but Grace, 
loves cows and she loves chickens. And in her five-year-old brain, there's a disconnect. How can I say I love the chicken and then I eat the chicken? How barbaric is this? But Courtney told us one time that there was this brief little three-day window where Grace said, okay, mommy, I'll eat some meat. And so she said every meal she was at the McDonald's drive-thru pumping her kid full of McNuggets. Now, it could be questionable as to whether or not that qualifies as meat, but still, it's more meat than something green and leafy. Just shoveling the nuggets down her throat. And for three days, Grace ate the nuggets. And then on the third day, they go through the drive-thru, get the Happy Meal. And Courtney said they get down the road a little bit, and uh, she heard quiet tears in the back seat. She said, Gracie, what's wrong? Mommy, I just can't do it. I love chicken so much. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) That was it. For you and I, loving animals and eating it, I'll preface it, for the majority of us, I assume, loving animals and eating animals is an acceptable hypocrisy. (laughs) I love cows, and I love them in my belly, right? (laughs) That's an acceptable hypocrisy. We live with all kinds of acceptable hypocrisies, but I don't understand why it is that prayerless Christianity has become an acceptable hypocrisy. We are anemic in our practice and theology of prayer, especially prayer as a strategy to bring the gospel to light in the hearts of our neighbors. We must pray, and many of you pray. I'm confident of it. I know that to be a fact. And you even have names and people that you have prayed to come to Christ. And those are the right prayers, and we must persevere long in those prayers. But I want you to make sure you understand what Jesus has told us to pray. Not merely that people would come to faith. What's the content of the prayer? Verse 38, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. The prayer is not just, God, save the one I love, although that's the right prayer. It is, God, send me. Send workers. Not my paid staff. Not simply leaders in the church. I'm the, one, I'm the disciple, the follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, send me. Make me a harvester of sheep who are lost and hurting without a shepherd. That's, that's the strategy, church. That's the strategy. We see the world as Jesus sees it. We have a heart like Jesus for people who are lost and hurting. And then you and I employ a strategy that Jesus gives us, a strategy rooted in prayer, prayer that God would raise up His church and His disciples and send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, raise up, raise up harvesters at South Shore Baptist Church unrelentless harvesters filled with the compassion of Christ for the lost. Pastor, writer, John Piper, he says, God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. If the kingdom of Christ advances in Hingham and beyond, it does so as God's people pray 
the prayer that Jesus has given us. If we're going to be believers that resemble Jesus, we need a couple of things. One, we need a heart like Jesus, compassion for the lost and the hurting. Two, we need a strategy like Jesus. We've got to be people intense in prayer. Third, and finally, write it in first person, I must live a life like Jesus. I need to have a heart like Jesus. I need to have a strategy like Jesus. I need to live a life like Jesus. So, in your Bible, chapter 9 ends, and then chapter 10 begins. And there's a break there. And sometimes when you and I read Scripture, we might think there's a break in thought because there's a break in the paragraph. Or we go from chapter 9 to chapter 10 because now we're to think about or focus on something else. Um, but we know that these numbers and these breaks, they're all just the, the choices of Bible translators and publishers. And I wouldn't want that job. That's really hard work. And I think they're helpful for us in a number of ways. But when we get to the end of chapter 9, it's not time to close the Bible and sit it down and walk away and say, job well done. We've got to keep reading because this section isn't done yet. Chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 10, belongs with what we've just read in chapter 9. Jesus has seen the masses, had compassion on them, called his disciples to prayer, and now chapter 10, verse 1, he calls his disciples again. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Then Matthew gives us a list of names of the 12. Now, this is not the instance in which they were called to follow Jesus as his disciples. This is just roll call time, essentially. So we get these 12 names, and then what Jesus does is he tells them where to go, what to do, and why to do it. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the lost sheep of Israel first. There's going to be another time when they go to Samaria and and the uttermost parts of the earth. They're going to go everywhere else later. But for now, right here in this context, it starts immediately local. That's where they're going to go. Uh, What are they going to do? Jesus tells them in verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with leprosy, drive out demons. Does that agenda sound familiar at all? Because it's what we opened this passage with. What kind of work does Jesus give his disciples to do? It's Jesus' work. It's the same thing he's done. He's going all over Galilee, preaching in all their synagogues, healing all the sick, all kinds of diseases, raising the dead. And then he turns to his 12 disciples and he says, it's your turn. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are one. Now they're going to be 13. And you're going to go out and you're going to do the same work that I've been doing. Preach the kingdom. Call people to repentance. Heal every sickness. Cast out demons. Jesus takes the mantle of his work and he lays it on his disciples and sends them out in the same ministry that he himself has been doing. And so they go out to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. And why must they do that? And why must we do this as well? Why must we carry out the same kind of ministry that Jesus has been performing among these hurt and lost people? Why? He says at the end of verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If you are, it's because you have freely received 
the grace of God to awaken faith in your heart that you would say yes to Christ and, and trust him as your savior. Freely you have received. So now, Christian, every Christian, young Christian, teenage Christian, a lot of miles on the odometer Christian, give. Freely you have received, freely give. We are all commissioned into this glorious work to live this kind of Jesus-flavored life. Now here's our pushback. Cody, that probably flies pretty well in Kansas, but this isn't Kansas. We, we We see the world different. We do things different here. The people are different. And, and you're right, all that's, all that's correct. You might push back in another way. Hey, you, you don't know me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the mistakes I've made. You don't know how messed up I am. You don't know what this last week was like for me. You don't know the grief I carry, the doubt that plagues me, the anguish I walk in day after. You don't know me. Don't, so you can't tell me I'm the one to go do this kind of thing. I don't know enough Bible. I don't pray enough. Don't come to church enough. I'm just, I'm here today to see the new monkey at the zoo. (laughs) And Jesus takes all of those objections and he says to you, Freely you've received, freely give. He doesn't make a mistake. You're not the exemption to what the Lord would do in your life just because you're a little train wrecky. Jesus knows all of that, and he's okay with it, not put off. You're not going to argue against him, and he's going to say, maybe you're right. (laughs) I got this one wrong. (laughs) Go live in a cave somewhere. No. He knows who he's called to be his and to serve him. And he has made no mistakes in those callings. I read an article recently about uh, a style of Japanese art. If my pronunciation is wrong, please forgive me. Uh, But it's called, I believe, Kintsugi. K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I. Kintsugi. And in this artwork, you take broken pottery like a bowl it's been broken into a lot of different pieces and you put that bowl back together but the artist puts it back together using a a lacquer that's laced with expensive gold so when the bowl is pieced back to its original form it has these veins of gold running all through it and although it was broken it's been put back together in such a way that it has more value than it ever had before And it becomes a beautiful vessel for whatever it holds. And so it is with you and I. We are a bunch of cracked pots. (laughs) And we have been lovingly mended by something far more precious than gold. It is the blood of God the Son who came to us. And when he does that mending work, and even when that mending work is long in the process, you come out the other side 
more beautiful a vessel to carry the message of the Lord to all those you encounter. You are not a mistake. You are not broken beyond repair. Jesus believes in you. And he says, freely you've received healing and salvation and forgiveness. Now, freely give. Get out of your pew and go be the words and the deeds of Jesus Christ to the community around us. Here's what Jesus has taught us today in Matthew chapters 9 and 10. Potency in ministry, effectiveness in ministry requires an exquisite resemblance to Jesus. We must love people the way he does. We must pray the way he does. We must minister, care the way he does. And if you're going to resemble Jesus in any of these ways, it starts with saying yes to Christ as your Savior. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you... Had your heart awakened to faith in Him and put all your trust in Christ for your salvation. When we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about a man who was a good prophet, who was merely a good teacher. We're not talking about someone who was more than a man or, and less than a God or the man chosen by God or the man who ascended to some sort of God-like status. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God with us. The whole reason we have this holiday season. God the Son Eternally magnificent and glorious and powerful. The one who said, let there be fill in the blank. That one came to us. He was born to a virgin named Mary. And the eternal unlimited God had to answer yes sir and no sir and yes ma'am and no ma'am to his parents. God who created quasars had to use doors. And he got sore muscles. And he had body odor. And he got thirsty and hungry, and he rode on donkeys. And that God was beaten almost beyond recognition. And he laid down his life and was executed on a Roman cross, suffocating in front of his mother and in front of his enemies. And he died. And everybody dies. But only one has risen from the dead, and that's Jesus, who is the God-man. And if that's what he did, then he is the way, the truth, the life. Not one road of many up the mountain to some vague God. He is the God who obliterated the mountain and came to you so that you could be rescued from the penalty of your sin. And he took all of your death so that you could have all of his life if you would say yes to Jesus Christ. And it could be that this is that day. You came to evaluate. But God brought you here to say yes to him. Praise God for that goodness. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the bullseye target of this passage. As a believer, it's, it's our call to look like Christ, to live like him, to love like him, to pray like him, to be these kinds of people. To not chalk up the sum total of our Christian practice to church attendance and a different morality, but rather that you and I live lives on mission with our faith family for the sake of the gospel in the communities in which we live. I have four daughters. Not one of them have ever been told, nor will they ever be told, you look like your dad. And that's okay. It's quite all right. 
But there are other ways they could resemble their dad. I would hope it would be through kindness, compassion, quick wit, (laughs) an indifference to boys. That'd be okay. (laughs) The resemblance is there. So may it be said of you and may it be said of South Shore Baptist Church that we look like our Father. Would you pray with me, please? Father God, thank you for your word to us, a word that we need because we don't have this just right. And we need to be molded and shaped according to this word from you. Father, there's, there's a reason we sang this morning that our Savior can move mountains. It's to remind us that there's nothing you're limited by, and that includes changing us and molding us and glorifying yourself in the places we live. So, Lord, I pray this morning for any of my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Father, thank you for their courage to be here today. God, I pray that you would open their ears to hear you, to receive your word. Lord, that you would move them forward in faith. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that there would be no mistaking who we look like. Let it be known to all those we encounter that though we are not perfect, yet we are striving to be like the one who has saved us. Father, thank you for giving us this common focus, this common direction as we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. God, let there be no mistake who we belong to. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.